Uh, we're in Genesis 23 this morning, and before we begin, we'll say a quick prayer to God. Um, an interesting little chapter. Initially, when I read it, I kind of went, man, what am I going to make of this? <laughs> There's nothing to preach about in this. <laughs> it's just a weird story about buying a plot of land. And then the more I, I looked into it, the more stuff I could see. It's wonderful, really. Anyways, Father God, we, 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 we lift up your name in this church this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray that um, you let us see something you want us to see in this, in this passage. Um, a passage about an old story from a long time ago, a long time from Galway. Uh, and yet it's as relevant and as alive then as it is in our hearts here today. <clears throat> Lord, give us eyes that can see what you want us to see in it. And through this, encourage us, Lord, and point us more and more uh, towards you and more and more deeper in love with you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I don't know, does anyone else get this, I don't know, is it a good thing to say, this feeling when you're driving to church on a Sunday morning? I certainly do when I drive along the coast road from Connemara, and I see all different types of people walking or cycling or uh, just outside their houses as I'm passing along that nice stretch of country road, and I ask myself, I wonder, am I the only Christian around this area here? I don't know, do you get that? Do you, do you, that's, does that thought ever come to you? And as I look at them, I say, well, you know what? They could be Christians, and they just don't realize it. And then I'm kind of going, no, that's not very biblical. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, well, a lot of them probably have some sort of idea of who God is. And how, how, how big and yet how small the journey is to know God. It can happen in an instant, and yet it's a chasm. And I often think about these people with a heaviness of heart. And I say to myself, man, if, 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 if some of these people became Christians, how it would impact on their communities? How it would impact on their area? How it, how it would impact on Galway? How it would impact on the country? And I wonder what would the other people in Ireland make of all this if there was suddenly a huge revival in Connemara or West Galway here running into Notnacara? How would it impact and how would it influence the country? How would it change people's view of who this God is that we worship? And in a way, I think all of us who get these thoughts now and again can identify with Sarah or with, with Abraham and Sarah as they were sojourning through this vast wilderness, looking and keeping onto this hope and this promise that God had planted into Abraham, had promised him. And yet they couldn't see it being fulfilled out, not in their lifetime. In small jumps maybe, but the grandiose scheme of things, it still looked, they were still pretty, pretty lonely. They went around with their bang of ragtag followers uh, looking for a place uh, they weren't quite sure where. But today we see for the first time in this text something new happening, something big happening today. So this text starts with uh, Abraham dealing with a group of people called the Hittites. Now, the commentators reckon this is not the same group of people, perhaps, who were the major Hittite nation up in Asia Minor. These look to be just like a tribe, and sort of one of the people groups of the Canaanites. In some of the older Bibles, they're called uh, the sons of Heth. But anyways, Sarah has died, and Abraham has a bit of a conundrum. He's a wanderer, he's a sojourner, he has no land, and he needs to buy her a plot to bury her. Interestingly enough, the scripture notes the age that Sarah was when she died. 
Now, she's the only woman in the Bible that Scripture records her age. So that kind of gives us a hint that this woman is held in very high esteem among Scripture, or among the Scripture writers, Moses, who wrote this at the time. After all, she's the grandmother of Israel. She's the, chief, the, 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 the wife of the chief patriarch, Abraham. She's commended by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, 3 to 6 as being a, a woman who was loyal to her husband. Isaiah even mentions her uh, as saying that Israel should look up to her because she bore them. She was their mother. Now, no, no doubt, in Scripture, and when we read chapters, I uh, can't remember, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, I think most of the account of Sarah and Abraham are in those chapters, especially the accounts of Sarah's life. She's not painted as being the perfect wife or the perfect woman or the perfect person. Far from it. And I think, you know, as a young Bible student coming to the Bible myself, this gave me great encouragement because I could see that the Bible was not airbrushing out people's faults. They were just natural like us, full of beauties and full of beautiful things and full of ugly things. And this is the same with, with Abraham or with Sarah. And there's no doubt that Abraham was brokenhearted at this time. And naturally, he mourned for her and he wept. And there was nothing wrong with that. Even if he held up hope of a great place that he and Sarah would again meet one day, he did weep for her. So in faith, we see today's narrative starting off with Abraham trying to acquire a little plot to bury Sarah. And he's got a bit of a problem because he's a sojourner. Now, sojourners or wanderers in those days weren't very heavily or weren't very mightily thought of. They were probably walked upon and abused and misused in all kinds of ways simply because they were just passers through. But this particular sojourner, Abraham, there's something different about him. In verse 4, he goes up to the Hittites and he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner amongst you. Give me property amongst you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, I think these Hittites had already known about or heard about uh, Abraham. They were a wee bit on their guard because they probably heard it from, I don't know who preached on it, I think it was Jason. They probably heard from Abraham's interactions with Abimelech, the Philistine uh, king, remember? That Abimelech had a bit of a, um, his, the nation had a bit of a mishap with uh, with, um, how shall I say it? They were cursed, really, because Abraham went in to Abimelech, told them that Sarah was his uh, sister. Abimelech took her uh, as a potential wife. Uh, nothing actually came about, nothing happened, but yet the land and Abimelech's house was cursed with infertility. And Abimelech came out of it, <laughs> narrowly escaping, gave Abraham a load of booty and kind of says, just, just don't bother us anymore, promise you won't do this thing to us again. And Abraham went off. But Abimelech remembered this, and he probably had passed this on to the Hittites, who probably heard this incident. So when they meet with Abraham, they are a very sort of a quiet little tribe. They're not treating him as they should, as just a simple wanderer. And we can say that, remember um, when Abraham met Abimelech, Abimelech straight away says, God is with you in all you do. Abimelech, the Philistine, could see that this God of Abraham was so utterly different from the false gods that he and his people adored. And now we see another, uh, another tribe, the Hittites, uh, meeting up with Abraham. 
and they as well, note, they address him as Lord. If you look at the text there, you'll see Lord dotted over the text there. And even they address him as you are a prince of God amongst us. So they're keen to please him. They don't want any Philistine trouble. And they even offer him a free burial spot. Take anyone you want, Abraham, they said. Just don't give us a hard time. Any plot you want, whichever one takes your fancy. But funnily enough, Abraham refuses this offer. Now, as Adam was reading the text, did you wonder why he might refuse this free offer? Sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? Like, it's not as if Abraham hasn't received free stuff before. Like I said earlier, Abimelech gave him a load of booty, a load of free stuff, which he went off with quite happily. And we saw as well when he did the same thing, the same plan, my wife is my sister plan with the king of Pharaoh. It also hurt Pharaoh's kingdom, and Pharaoh had to give him a load of riches and send him on his way and say, phew, thank God I got rid of that guy. So it wasn't as if Abraham wasn't used to taking gifts, but in this particular incidence, Abraham would not accept any gift from the Hittites. Because I think that Abraham knew, now how much he knew we're not sure, but Abraham definitely knew that there was something important happening here. Now, when God cut a covenant in Abraham back, with Abraham back in Genesis 15, one of the promises that God made to him was that his descendants would own land one day, despite the fact that he was wandering now. And another promise was that Sarah and himself would have a son in their old age. Now, this had miraculously had come about, but strangely, there was no land ownership yet. By now, we see Abraham mourning his wife who's deceased, and finally, maybe the thought hits him, well, this could be the opportunity to own the first piece of this holy land. God might be moving again now, just like when he moved, when he blessed Sarah and I with a son. And I think that Abraham definitely realized now that God was coming good on his land promise. And therefore, as the Hittites himself called him as a prince of God, he realizes that he had to act with great honor and openness in dealing with the owners of this land, the Hittites. After all, he was acting on behalf of God. How did he deal with the Hittites, reading the text? Well, I think he dealed impeccably with them. Twice we see in verse, in, we see in verse 7 and we see in verse 11. Do you notice there he bows before the people of the land? Now, let's remember that Abraham was no slouch. He was a very rich, influential, powerful man with his own highly trained army of over 300 men. He might have been able to take the land by force if he wanted, but he didn't do it. He bowed himself in an act of humbleness over and over again in this text. Many years later, another man also chose to take this course and humble himself. In fact, making the bold countercultural claim, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that man was Jesus. And figuratively speaking, Abraham, in faith, was putting this, test, this statement to the test. It shows, I think, if we look at Abraham's life, it shows great maturity. He now was learning to lean more and more on God, for God to give him the opportunities and the wisdom to know which way to go. I think if we look at this, sorry, before I go on, this is making an awful racket. I wonder, is it because it's in my pocket? 
on my front pocket. I'll try and move this. Can you hear that? It's making a crackling sound in my ear here. Okay. Can you hear that? No? Okay, it's making a terrible crackling sound. Okay. In his dealings with the Hittites, Abraham conducts himself absolutely impeccably. And, uh, sorry, I've, uh, let me go on to the next point. We can make a point of application here that we as individuals and as a church can learn much of the way, can learn much from the way that Abraham behaved. Because we too have to humble ourselves before a watching world. Now, how we as Christians behave before a watching world is of the utmost importance to our testimony. We are to be a people who behave differently. We are to be a people who are counter-cultural. When the culture of the day says, go out, gain for yourself, it's okay to be a little selfish. You have to take care of yourself before you take care of others. This is so, count this is so counter the biblical message that it's just preposterous because Paul in Colossians says that Christians should have compassionate hearts, kindness, and here it is again, meekness and patience. And later on in that passage, Paul exhorts his fellow Christians that we should be a people who are filled with love for one another and others. Imagine if we as Christians, as, as kind of lights in this dark world for God, lived out fully these imperatives. What a witness that would be in Galway. What a witness that would be in our families. What a witness that would be in society, our neighborhoods, in our counties, and in the nation. But unfortunately, down through history, the church and Christians can lose sight of this calling and purpose to be lights amidst a dark world, to be a people who are meek and loving, a people who are called out to serve. And instead, we end up like the world, looking not like Jesus, but looking worldly. You know, as Christians, we are called to be people who, like Abraham, are exiles in the world, looking beyond it to our true world, to our true home. We shouldn't get attracted by this world's seductive songs and whisperings in our ears. And they're very real. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The world loves to do this to us. The world wants us to look more like it and less like Christ. And this is the tension that we as wanderers, as exiles in this world, this is the tension that battles, uh, that, that we battle in our lives. We have to press back on this seductive way of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that Christians become disinterested in the world or in the problems of the world or in the broken people that are in this world. On the contrary, a Christian as a follower of Christ is told to be a man and a woman who is passionate, pointing needy and hurt peoples towards Christ, where, they on, where in only Christ they can experience peace and forgiveness through Jesus on the cross. So how we deal with people that we see around us who are, who are groaning, who are broken, who are sinful, who live in this suffering world, it's an important indicator of whether we're living the gospel out or not. It reveals the state of our hearts. If, we're, if they are like Christ being a soft, compassionate heart, or if we still have a worldly hard heart. In fact, Peter, in the rest of that, um, in the following verse, he says, 
Keep your conduct, he says, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I'm sure some of us as Christians have had chats with our friends and families. And sometimes our beliefs are ridiculed and our beliefs have scoffed at. But there's no need for Christians to fear when others try and tear down the strongholds of Christianity because when Christians follow the gospel truthfully and fully, we see that we are a people who serve. In fact, you can remind your friends and families that think of many of the good institutes in this world. They have been founded by Christians. Christians are often the first to appear at the site of natural disasters. Christians were the forerunners who set up education and, and universities. Christians were the forerunners who set up hospitals and took care of the needy and the, health and the uh, unhealthy, the disadvantaged. Christians were the forerunners to help push the abolishment of slavery. So there's no need to cower or to be shy when people say, what have Christians done that's any good? Christians have done so much because they're trying to emulate Jesus Christ who himself was compassionate. And they've done more. But we get a little picture of how Christians behave, how we should behave in Galway amidst a bigger society of unbelievers. This, these small little islands, these small little lights in the darkness, by looking again at Abraham in the text here, he behaved impeccably with the Hittites. He modeled well, for instance, how it looks like to deal fairly with people, people who might disagree with us, people who actually might hate us, yet we are to deal fairly with them and compassionately with them. And it's difficult to do. But this is the way that God has asked us to conduct ourselves while we're in exile. He says you are to be a people who are holy, reflecting him. So Abraham needed a burial plot for Sarah. The Hittites knew that he, ne he needed a burial plot. Abraham knew that they feared him. He could have taken advantage of them. Abraham refused their free offer. You see, he knew that if he was given the land as a free gift, he wouldn't have the same firm claim on it as if or as when he would actually trans have a transaction based on cash, based on riches. So he knew this. And the funny thing is, if you recall what Adam read there, we can see that Abraham actually comes out of this deal, uh, not out of pocket, but he paid a very pricely sum for this plot. And I think what God was trying to teach Abraham there was that to help build his kingdom, there would be costs, as there are costs for us. In Abraham's particular case, at this incident, there was a monetary cost because this was not really the way of conducting business in that particular culture at that time. I think there was another reason as well why Abraham didn't take this gift for free. Remember back in Genesis 14 when Abraham had dealings with the king of Sodom and there was a great big battle there and the king of Sodom had uh, utilized, or, or Abraham had come to the help of the king of Sodom with his private army and managed to rout another four or five kings, a confederacy, another four or five kings. And the king of Sodom was so happy, he said, Abraham, you know what? You can have all this booty of the war, all this good stuff, just take it away with you as a gift, as a thanks from me. 
And it's interesting in Genesis 14, Abraham replies to him. It sounds a small bit snotty, but no, it's not. He replies to the king of Sodom. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, least you should say, I have made Abram rich. I think this is a big clue that Abraham was clued in to the promise of God here, that this was the opportunity that God was giving him a bit of the land, the first bit of land, and God had to get all the glory. He couldn't receive this free field for free. It just wouldn't be right. So God put, put it on Abraham's mind then to buy this burial spot, but not any burial spot, a particular one. One called the Cave of Machpelah, belonging to a bloke called Ephraim. So Abraham meets with Ephraim in the place where business was often con conducted. He, he meets with him in the gates of the city. Now, there was a way of conducting business in those days, and it followed a particular protocol. The first thing was the seller would approach or the, would, would um, communicate with the buyer and say, well, look at, um, you can have this place for free. Now, this was just ceremonial business talk. It actually didn't mean anything. And if the buyer says, okay, I'll take it for free, this would have really insulted the seller. But the seller had to start off like this and say, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the field for free. So then, of course, the buyer would kindly refuse this and insist on paying a price. This, of course, is what the seller was waiting for. Then the bargaining could begin. So then the seller would suggest a price. He'd pretend that this price was actually a very good and very fair price. It was always an exorbitant price, way over the top. But then, at least, it was a start for the bartering to begin. So anyways, Ephraim's opening price, according to the commentators, was very, very high for this field for that time. And he was probably pleasantly surprised when Abraham said, all right, I'll take it. This was very countercultural. This was not normal. Now, we might ask ourselves again, wouldn't you think that Abraham would be tempted to save a few shekels? But no, he realized again that, in a sense, he was cashing in on God's promise here. That somehow, and he probably didn't understand the magnitude of this, that all of the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, were somehow going to be blessed through what was happening on this particular day, on this particular deal with Ephraim. He knew that this was big. So the inflated price probably in his head meant nothing in the grand scheme of things. It was nothing. He would have paid double, triple, I'm sure, quadruple of what Ephraim was offering. And have you noticed then, at the very end there, it says that not long did he get the burial spot, the cave, he also got a field and trees. Now, I don't know what's this part of the bargain. I don't know did Ephraim work the head on him. Commentators are not sure about what went on here. But certainly, he seems to have got more than he bargained for. Maybe he was taken advantage of. We don't know. We can't guess. But certainly, he came away with a large swathe or a nice parcel of land. And verse 19 tells us that he buried Sarah there. And not alone was Sarah actually buried in that field or in that tomb, but Isaac and Ishmael, about 40 years later, buried Abraham there. And we can see that Jacob, 
he buried Leah there, and Joseph buried Jacob there. So we can say that this tomb was indeed the great tomb of the patriarchs. Now, how can we apply, or how can we make another application? We've already looked at one that we should be lights for God in this dark world. We should deal fairly with the people around us. But can we make any other application here? Well, there's seven or more we could make, but we could say that just like Abraham didn't see the promises of God fulfilled in his life, he held on with faith and he walked in faith. We, could, we, could, we can pick that one out of it. We can also see that Abraham was being told, and God tells us, not to be unequally yoked with the people or the ways of this world. And we can see that just like Abraham, we also are sojourners passing through this world with a hope that is greater than anything we see around us. But because this is Sarah's day, because this is Sarah's death, we should maybe see if we can learn anything at all from Sarah, which might encourage us. And we can see here that at the beginning I mentioned that Sarah had many flaws. She was just a human like you and me. And if you had, say, a cold student of the Bible looking at the text of Genesis from 16 up to where we are now, you can see that that student might say, but you know what, Sarah was a sinner. And she was a, she was a pretty consistent sinner. And we'd have to say, yes, she was. I mean, look at it in chapter 16 in Genesis, uh, 16 2, she blamed God for not being able to bear a child. And then she gave her servant Hagar to Abraham to bear a son. I mean, this is after the promise had been given to Abraham. Later on in that chapter, in verses 4 to 5, she became jealous of Hagar. She had a terrible, terrible heated argument with her. Not exactly a good role model of being Abraham's wife or a child of God. And then in chapter 16, verse 6, she treated Hagar with cruelty and drove her away. Then later on, she laughed at God when God said that she was going to bear a son. And then she ended up booting out um, Hagar and Ishmael. After that again, when Ishmael made a snide remark about Isaac. Hardly a role model, just like us, I think. Now, I'm sure that Satan, who's named the accuser, bought up all those shortcomings of Sarah, all those sin that she had committed, all those times when she had let herself and her husband and the people around her down and said, you know what? You're not anything like you should be. And probably feelings of self-loathing, guilt, welled up inside her from time to time. Satan probably really enjoyed making her feel unworthy of God's behavior or at God's favor and blessing. And I think if we're honest, Satan sometimes does that with us as well. He can remind us at times of some of the past sins that we have committed. He brings them back sometimes into focus. And what do we do at times like this? Well, we can't beat ourselves up over sins that have been committed. As Christians, that is behind us. But at times we do remember them. The only thing we can do in times like this is walk in faith and look forward with our eyes held upon the hope that we have. Because if we beat ourselves up over past sins, past guilts, we just drag ourselves back into an area that has, we, we mean, we've been taken out of that area of our lives. That sin, that guilt is nailed to the cross. 
We may look back and thank God for what He has done, but we should not remember our sins. First Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 says, this is what we are to hold on to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He said. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, for everyone in this room who believes in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sin on the cross, that we are forgiven. This is the treasure that is held up for us. Who, Peter continues, verse 5, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just as Sarah sinned many times over, God chose not to remember her sin. God only chose to remember her faith, along with all the heroes of the faith that we read about in Hebrews chapters 11. There are many fallible men and women there, many sinful men and women there, and yet they are in this chapter. Let's encourage ourselves by thinking that God remembers our faith. So just as Abraham paid a redemption price for Sarah, Jesus Christ has paid a redemption price for each one of us in this room who trusts in him. He's paid, like Abraham, the full price. He didn't bargain. He didn't try to make it a lesser penalty, a lesser, a lesser misery to go through. He went through it physically and spiritually. He suffered terrible physical pain, but that was not the worst. The worst was that he went through spiritual separation from the Father for a number of hours on the cross. The Father and the Son, for the first time in eternity, somehow were not in fellowship with one another. And he did this for you. Every one of us in this room, he did this for us. If we have accepted this by faith, if we believe this by faith, So we should not remember our sins consciously. They will come to our minds now and again, but they should never haunt us as they once did. God has completely forgiven them through Christ. And if during times when you feel down and these sins come back and haunt you, remember these verses. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, God speaking, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. What about Jeremiah? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So why should we remember our sin if God is willing to forget about them? Why? We cannot beat ourselves up because what happens then is we become ineffective lights in this dark world for Christ. Forgiven people who put their trust in Christ have their sins taken away. Abraham and Sarah understood this. Abraham and Sarah walked in faith, just as we should do today, because they had a faith in a great God. And what a great God we have. Amen. Father, um, 
We thank you so much for what you've done through Jesus on the cross. If we were to sit down and try and design a salvation plan that would be effective to all parties, that would please the Father's wrath, that would take our sin away and give us the righteousness of Christ himself, we couldn't come up with a better plan of salvation than what you have, Lord. It's the only plan of salvation. It's only through the Son that we can come to you. So, Lord, we thank you this Sunday morning in Galway City Baptist Church for your Son. We thank you for um, what he went through on the cross, which we probably don't understand very well, but we understand enough to understand that it was of great magnitude and seriousness what went on on the cross, uh, where you offered up your Son, who was willing to be offered up for my sin for our sin. So Father, let this be the fuel and the promise that one day we shall meet Jesus and God and the Spirit face to face, if that's the right way to put it, and we shall fellowship and thank them and sing their praises in eternity forever. Amen.